All right, John chapter 7. So last week, we saw Jesus was in Galilee. It's uh, maybe October, Fest, Feast of Tabernacles, Festival of Tabernacles. It's the last of three annual festivals on the Jewish calendar. And uh, he's in Galilee, in the, in the northern area where he's from. He's not in Jerusalem where the festival is being celebrated. And his brothers, his half-brothers, they say to him, Hey, if you want to be a public figure, you should go to Jerusalem publicly. And you need to work some wonders, do some miracles, draw a crowd, build up your following. If you want to be a public figure, that's what you should do. And Jesus says, No, it's not the right time for me. That word kairos, that's what we talked about last week. This, the right time, the opportune time. It's not the right time for me to come that, for, for me to come. To Jerusalem, And so he, he says no to them, and he stays in Galilee, I think, for several days. And then he does decide to go to Jerusalem, but he goes, John says, in secret. And the, the, the opinions are mixed about Jesus. You have the religious leaders who've already decided we want to arrest him and kill him. And then among the crowd, there's some people who are saying he's a good man, and there's some people who are saying he's a deceiver. So you kind of have this mixed uh, opinion of Jesus. He is now in Jerusalem in secret, whatever that means. And that's where we're going to pick up today, halfway through the festival. So it's an eight-day festival. This is day four. And this section is a bit convoluted. Uh, and one of the reasons is because Jesus addresses four different groups of people, but it's all kind of intertwined together. So you'll see a graphic there up on the screen that shows you who those four groups of people are. The broadest group are the crowds. So that is people who live in Jerusalem, and people who've traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And Gentiles were able to participate in the Festival of Tabernacles to a limited degree, so it also includes Jew and Gentile. Broadest group, Jew and Gentile, people from Jerusalem, and people, uh, pilgrims, who have traveled into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Then you have the Jews, the next largest group. That's who you think it is, God's people, the Jewish people. Then you have the people of Jerusalem. So that's Jews who live in Jerusalem, and they're aware of the plot to arrest and kill Jesus. They live in the same town as these religious leaders. They're aware of what's going on. And then the Pharisees, the smallest group, those are the ones who've decided we want to arrest and kill Jesus. So as we go through, you can, if you can, just kind of keep in mind these different groups of people that Jesus is addressing. They all have a different opinion about who he is, and they have a different way of relating to him. So starting in uh, verse 14 of chapter 7. So not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So again, this is day 4. The Jews, so that's who he's speaking to, the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him, or there is nothing unrighteous about him. That word false is unrighteous. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? So Jesus is teaching in the temple court, so that's outside in this space, and the Jews are hearing him. And teaching is interpreting the Old Testament law, and that's their book as the Jews. That's their book, that's their law, and they're amazed. We hear that word in a positive way. In the New Testament, it can mean anything from scandalized to marveling. It's positive or negative based on the circumstances, and it seems here that it's maybe a bit more negative. Maybe they're astonished. Maybe they're a bit scandalized at what Jesus is saying. We don't know exactly what he's saying. 
But what the Jews are saying about him, hey, that, that's our book. And what gives you the right to interpret our book? You didn't go to the right schools. So if you want to be a rabbi, you would apprentice to an existing rabbi. So I would attach myself to an existing rabbi. I would learn everything that man has to say about the Old Testament, about the law, about the opinions of the rabbis about the law, particularly about his own opinions and his own interpretations. And after a period of years, then maybe I would move out on my own. Jesus was never attached to a rabbi. And so they're saying, Who, what gives you the right to interpret our law? You didn't go through the proper channels to be able to do that. And Jesus' response is my, uh, my interpretations of the law, my teaching, they're not mine. They come from the one who sent me. My authority is not based on my relationship with a rabbi. My authority is based on my relationship with God. And anyone who does the will of God, that's another way of saying anyone who's in a right relationship with God, they'll know that my words are true, which is a bit of a shot at the people if they were to disagree with him. They're Jews, and they would say, we are, we're God's people. We are in a right relationship with him because we're Jews. We're here during this festival. And what Jesus is saying was, well, if you are, then you'll agree that what I'm saying is true. And then he goes on to say, and I don't, have a, I don't have an agenda here. I'm here to seek the glory of God, the glory of the one who sent me. I don't have a personal agenda. Y'all have a personal agenda, and it's causing you to interpret the law unrighteously. Y'all are trying to kill me, even though the sixth commandment says, don't kill. And yet, that's what you're trying to do. And that brings a rise out of people. Verse 20. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. So now we've shifted. Not Jews. Now we're looking at the broader crowd. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. If you remember, circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham. You circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly or judge righteously. That's what that word is. So now the crowds, remember the crowd is mixed. It's Jew and Gentile, and it's locals and travelers. And what they're saying is, who's trying to kill you? You're, you're crazy. That's what they're saying about him. You're crazy. You're here in public. Nobody's touching you. Nobody's trying to kill you. And Jesus just plows on. And he says, I healed one man on the Sabbath. We remember that from John chapter 5. He healed the man at the pool who hadn't been able to walk for 40 years. And he did that on the Sabbath day. And he says, because of that, y'all are trying to kill me. But you make exceptions to the Sabbath all the time. For instance, if a boy is born on a Friday, the following Saturday, that's eight days after his birth. And according to the law of Moses, a boy is to be circumcised on the eighth day. So even though that day is the Sabbath, you circumcise him anyway. You do work on the Sabbath. You circumcise this boy on the Sabbath in accordance to the law of Moses. If you're willing to circumcise a boy on the Sabbath, if that's an exception to the rule of no work, how is healing a man not an exception to the rule? Healing is greater than circumcision. If you're willing to make an, an exception for circumcision, how are you not willing to make an exception for healing? It's an argument for lesser to greater. It doesn't make sense. And what he says is y'all are judging superficially. What you're using, you're using this superficial interpretation of the law that I did work in order to come up with a reason to kill me. Because remember, you're false. 
You're unrighteous in your interpretations. And you're using, your interpret, you're using this interpretation of the law to prop up this agenda that you have, which is to kill me. You need to judge righteously. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem, third group, begin to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that Jesus is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here of my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? So this group is confused. So these are the Jews who live in Jerusalem, and they know, well, our, the religious leaders want to arrest him and kill him, and they're confused because nobody's doing anything. Well, he's here in public, and he's teaching, and they're not moving to arrest him, so maybe they've changed their mind about Jesus since he was here last. Maybe they decided he really is the Messiah. And others in that group are saying, well, he can't be the Messiah because we know he's from Nazareth. And when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from. That's not true. Micah 5.2 says the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, they're mistaken. We don't know why, but they are. So they, 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 they're mistaken in terms of how they would identify the Messiah, but the bigger picture for them is it can't be Jesus. He's from Nazareth, and Jesus hears them talking, and he says, time out, you, you know my hometown. That's irrelevant. What matters is the one who sent me, the Father, and you don't know him. And that would be offensive if you were a Jew. You're, what, you're the people of God, and for this guy to say, hey, you don't know God, that would be deeply offensive. And so they try to seize him, but they can't because it's not yet the right time. That's what we talked about last week, this idea that Jesus' life is governed by this, this hour when he's going to be arrested and when he's going to be killed and when he's ultimately going to be resurrected. And, and everything for him is centered around that hour. He didn't go to Jerusalem when his brothers asked him because it wasn't the right time. It wasn't a Kairos moment. And here, it's not the right time for him to be arrested. I don't know on the ground what does it look like for those guys to not be able to seize Jesus. We don't know. John doesn't tell us what actually happened. He's just looking at it from his perspective and saying the reason they couldn't is because God wouldn't let them. Because it wasn't time yet for Jesus to be arrested. But there are some people in the crowd who are starting to warm up to Jesus. And they're saying, well, would the Messiah really work more miracles than him? Is the Messiah going to perform more miracles than Jesus has performed? Maybe he is the Messiah. And that brings the fourth group into view. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about Jesus. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you can't come. The Jews said to one another, so now we've zoomed back out. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you can't come? And then this, the passage just ends, and the next verse is four days later. Just kind of an abrupt 
ending to this exchange Jesus has. So the Pharisees, they've already decided to kill Jesus. Their nightmare scenario is that he draws a crowd. In John eleven forty eight, we see the, the motivation of the religious leaders explicitly stated, we can't let this guy have a crowd because then the Roman government will come and take our temple and they'll take our nation, they'll take our land. We can't have that. So once there, there's murmurings or whisperings in the crowd that some people are beginning to think maybe Jesus is the Messiah, that's the cue for the Pharisees to come and shut him down. So they send some guards to arrest Jesus. And when they come, he says to them, I'm only going to be here for a little bit, and then I'm going to leave, and where I'm leaving, you can't follow me, which is a, a pretty cryptic statement. We know what he's talking about, but at the moment, nobody understood it. And, and the Jews who began our section by challenging Jesus' authority to teach, they don't understand. And where, where, where can he possibly go that we can't follow him? Maybe he's going to go to the other cities in the Roman Empire where there are enclaves of Jewish people, and he's going to teach them. He's going to teach those Greek-speaking Jews. Maybe that's what he's going to do. And again, then the, the passage just ends. It's a bit of a weird section. And I was reading it. The thing that jumped out at me the most was this phrase that Jesus uses four different times, the one who sent me, the one who sent me. So there's 23 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to his father or the father as the one who sent him. He does that zero times in Matthew, zero times in Mark, zero times in Luke. It's unique to John. This, this idea of the Father as the one who sent Jesus. And it's a part of Jesus' understanding of who he is as well, one who was sent by the Father. You can see those key turning points in this conversation with these four different groups of people. Each time he's confronted, he responds with some reference to the one who sent him. You don't have any authority to teach. Well, my authority, it's not my own. The words I'm teaching, are, are they're the, one, the words of the one who sent me. You can trust me because I'm seeking the glory of the one who sent me. You're not qualified to be the Messiah because we know that you're from Nazareth. Where my hometown's irrelevant. What matters is that you know the one who sent me. People coming to arrest him. And his response when he's about to be arrested is, I'm about to leave and I'm going to go back to the one who sent me. That idea of sentness, which is, that's not a real word, but we're going to use it. That idea of sentness is crucial to Jesus' self-understanding in John. That's how he sees himself. There are other ways that he sees himself, but, he, but one of the primary ways he does see himself is as one who is sent. And one of the primary ways he sees his father is as the one who sent him. Still January, first half of January, we're holding firm to our resolutions, maybe. So here's one for you. You don't have to do anything different. You have to change the way you think. This would be my hope for every man and woman, every student in the room as you leave today, is that you would acknowledge your sentness. All the way at the end of John, one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples is, as I was sent, so I send you. So if you're following Jesus, then by definition, you've been sent as well. But if I, we were to take a poll and I would say, raise your hand if you live your Monday through Friday as one who's been sent by God into whatever it is that your life looks like. The overwhelming majority of us, 95%. 
We keep our hands in our laps and we say, that's not, that's not a conscious thought for me. I don't live Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday as one who's been sent by the Father to whatever it is my life happens to look like. If I'm the devil and I know that there are literally hundreds of millions of people on the face of this earth who have full access to the Father as sons and daughters, who've been forgiven of their sins, who've been released from bondage by the power of Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit living within them, the Spirit of God dwelling within them to empower them to live a life of faithfulness and fruitfulness. That makes me shake in my boots. Hundreds of millions of those. What better way to shut that army down than to convince 90 plus percent of them they're not really part of an army at all. They're not called and they're not sent. Maybe they can write a check once a month. But by and large, their life is a series of arbitrary and random decisions and conversations and routines that have nothing to do with what God is doing on the face of the earth. How else can you shut down an army like that? If we recognized who we were as sent ones, it would change what we do. You don't have to do anything differently than think differently to begin to acknowledge, like Jesus acknowledged, the Father is the one who sent me. Can you say that? The Father is the one who sent me. And I'm one who's been sent by the Father. We can look at Michael Mosley here on the front row and say, well, he spent 11 years in Ghana. That's what it means to be sent. He picked up his family and he moved to Africa and he lived there for 11 years. And so that, that's our picture of a sent one. Somebody like that who does something like that. And for most of us, when we think about our life here in Marietta and Cobb County, we don't have any great story. God didn't appear to us in a dream and say, move to Marietta. God didn't appear to us and say, major in this or take this job or we just woke up one day and it was kind of like, Here, here's my life. Here's my life. I'm living in the suburbs and I've got this family and I've got this job and this within the, the context of this career and I'm doing the best that I can. But to think that any of that has anything to do with what God is doing in the world, we're do- that's foreign to us. And so we wind up living lives of distraction and disengagement simply because we don't recognize the the truth and the reality that we're sent. So again, my hope for you in the next couple of minutes is that you would come to believe that that is a true statement about you. Your father is the one who sent you into the life that you're living. So what does it look like to begin to acknowledge that sentness before the Lord? Just two things for you to think about. The first is for you to recognize your boundary lines. It's something we've talked about before. That's an Old Testament concept. The boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places, David says. Back to Exodus, the law, God gave his people dirt, literal dirt, and said, here's your inheritance, and you put up boundary markers to mark your territory. We don't have that sense of physical earthiness to our inheritance from the Lord. We We don't have the ground that we can say, hey, this is mine. And if we did, if it was on a map, you would have a little bit in one place and a little bit in another place and a little bit in another place because we live such spread out lives and that's fine. We're not going to try to fight that battle this morning. This morning, the, the idea is just to recognize that where you live and where you work 
are not accidental. And when I say where you live, don't just think about your street address. I want you to think about where you live your life. Where do you spend your time? Where do you eat? Where do you get your hair cut? Where do you go to the gym? Where do you buy groceries? All of that is, if you can begin to see that as your territory. And where you work, not just where you go to get paid, but where you spend your time and your energy. It may be on a volunteer basis. It may be just things that you enjoy doing. But both of those dynamics, where you live and where you work, the combination of those things with the people who you encounter in those places, that's, that's where you're sent. You're sent to a place to interact with a people. I don't know that God's sending anybody to Antarctica to hang out with the penguins. If there are people there, then it's okay. But otherwise, it's, that's, that's kind of a no-go for us in terms of sentness. God sends us to places to interact with people in those places. So can you, in your mind, begin to define your boundary lines? Where do you live? And again, it's not going to be a square on a map for most of you because you live in one place and you get in the car and you drive for half an hour to work in a different place. So you might have multiple squares, and that's okay. But can you begin to define what those are, where you live and where you work? And then the next thing is just to assume that you were sent to those places. That's it. Nothing magic or super spiritual. You just assume that God has sent you to those places. You, you trust in the sovereignty of God that he has placed you in those particular areas. You may say, well, I, didn't even, I wasn't even a Christian when I moved to that street. Doesn't matter. I never even prayed about whether I should take that job. Don't worry about it. Can you trust the sovereignty of God that he has put you where you are? You're not at Piedmont accidentally. God's put you there. And if you can begin to, to recognize that, and, and, and you can trust that God is the sender, and if he wants to send you somewhere else, he can. You don't need to get hung up on that. For many of us, we want to get it right, and we wonder, is this the right spot for me, and am I in the right place, and do I need to move? And I would say, just relax about that. He can, he can prompt you. If you're someone who's kind of submitted to the Lord, then that process of sending you somewhere else is, can be kind of gentle and easy. If you're someone who's rebellious, you can take comfort that God sent Jonah. And when Jonah, he sent Jonah to Nineveh, and when Jonah said, I want to go, and got in a boat and went the opposite direction, God caused a storm, and Jonah got thrown in the sea to calm the storm, and he sent a fish to swallow Jonah up and vomit him out on the ground. So worst case scenario for you is that. If you're going to be rebellious, he can figure it out. Like, he's not, that's not too hard for him. And so I say that to encourage you and to give you some sense of comfort and peace. You don't have to try to figure it, like, is all this right? What I want you to do today is just assume that it's right. And if it's wrong, the sender is more than capable of getting you on the right track. If you're submitted to him, yes. And even if you're disobeying him, yes, he can still get you on the right track. So I don't want you to worry about that, that we can get hung up on that. Uh, too much, and it can actually keep us from engaging where we are. So assume and trust the sovereignty of God and trust that if God ever wants your boundary lines to look different, that'll be his job to initiate that. And what you need to begin to do and what I need to begin to do is to trust that you and I have something to give to the people where we go. There's a reason it's you and not me there. 
And there's a reason it's you and not the person sitting, sitting next to you there. There's some reason that God has put you in those places. There's something that you have to give that the people in those places need, not because you're wonderful or better than anybody, but because of the work God has done in you and because of the person God has made you to be. And so for many of us, it's just as simple as living our daily life, Monday through Friday, with our eyes open instead of our head down. You're not just trying to plow through to the weekend. You're expecting and assuming, hey, God put me here. And so there's something for me here that it's more than just making money. It's more than just checking boxes. It's more than just running through a routine. Something about what I'm doing contributes to what God is doing in the world. That's a mindset shift. It's to, it's to see yourself, regardless of what your business card says, regardless of what your calendar says you're doing, it's to see yourself as a sent one and to recognize that God has purpose for you in the life that you're living. Even if you would say, I got into this life with no thought about God at all. Don't worry about that today. Assume and trust his sovereignty and then begin to ask him. Give me eyes to see where you're at work. I want to be sensitive to your spirit. We talked last week. I want to submit my time to you, all of it, and ask you what, whatever you want to do. I want to assume that, that, that there, there are ways that you want to use me to encourage other people or to further what you're doing in these particular places. And so then you're just aware and you, you'll, you'll know. Y'all experience that, that kind of internal sense. I wonder if I should say this to this person or I wonder if I should do this in this situation and it'll work out or it won't and that doesn't matter. The results are up to the Lord. Your job is just to be obedient. What would it look like for you starting tomorrow to assume that whatever tomorrow holds, wherever it, wherever it is that you live and work on Monday, that the reason you live and work there instead of somewhere else is because your father has sent you there. Your father who formed you and knit you together in your mother's womb. Your father who knows you better than you know yourself. So he knows the best spot for you. And what would it look like for you to assume and to trust that he sent you to that place and to live accordingly? Let's take a minute and pray. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. If you came in with a need this morning, we want to pray with you. During worship, someone had uh, a sense that there may be people particularly who are struggling with this issue of identity, of what it is to be a son and a daughter, a son or a daughter of God. If, if that's you, please let us pray. That may be something uh, that God is doing during this service in your heart. The two big things I want everybody thinking about, one, you can do uh, in your heart, in your seat, and the other will require some movement. In your heart, in your seat, I want to encourage you just to acknowledge your sentness before the Lord. I want you to think through your boundary lines, and in your heart, I want you to say to the Lord, I recognize you've sent me to, and then you fill in the blank with whatever that place is. You've sent me to Piedmont Hospital. You've sent me to Oak Hill Landscaping. You've sent me to Westside Elementary School, whatever those things are, you begin to, to name those boundary lines and acknowledge before the Lord that he sent you there. That seems so simple. It can be profound. 
mindset shift. And I would encourage everybody to do that. Second thing is we're going to have ministry teams here up in the corners. If you're on the teams, any team, uh, for any week, please come forward. We may need many of you this morning. And I want you to grab a bottle of oil, one of those little vials, and we would invite you to come forward if you want to be commissioned into that understanding of sentness. These ministry teams are going to make a cross on the back of your hand with that oil, and they're going to pray that God would send you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There may be a particular place as you're thinking through your boundary lines that you want to say, hey, pray for me and my sentness in this particular area. It may be more general. But we want to commission every one of you that desires to that this morning. And again, that's just an outward sign of a recognition of the inward work of God by His Spirit. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then you guys can respond however you feel uh, is appropriate. God, we thank you that you're a God who sins. We thank you, Father, that first you sent your Son, that everyone who believes in Him doesn't have to die but can live forever. And we're thankful for all of the benefits of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Father, we also want to acknowledge that you send us in the same way that you sent Jesus. And for many of us, if we're honest, we don't believe that. But you say it's so. And so in faith, we want to agree with you. My prayer for the men and the women, for the students in this room this morning, is that that conviction would be planted deep within our hearts. That you are the Father who sent us, and we are the ones who've been sent by you. God, I pray that as we engage in our daily life, Mondays and Wednesdays and Tuesdays, that we would do so with our eyes open, not with our heads down. Trusting that we are where we are because you've put us there, and therefore you have purpose for us in those places and with those people. And would you use us in whatever ways you see fit to further your agenda, your kingdom here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand and respond as you feel that.